everybody. God bless you all this morning. We are ready to worship the Lord. So if you are able, stand to your feet. and Let's give God praise. Sing, church. I hear you. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Oh, yes. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Oh, worthy. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy. This is amazing. Take 
You may be seated. Will you pray with me, please? Dear Lord, we pray to you this morning to ask you to help us in dealing with the many ways we are confronted with the question, am I good enough? If we are struggling with whether or not we are good enough to get to heaven, then you gave us a clear answer to that in Ephesians, where Paul said, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We thank you for putting all of us on an equal footing, no matter our talents or works. Not one of us is good enough for salvation, but your grace is what saves us. But the question, am I good enough, haunts many of us in other areas of our lives. Were we raised by overly critical parents who made us feel that we were never good enough? Or were we part of a works-oriented church like the Apostle Paul who said he failed constantly at living up to a perfect law. You, dear Lord, are the one who can rescue us from these ingrained doubts and feelings of inadequacy and tendencies toward perfectionism. As Paul said to the Colossians, it is by the mighty strength that you supply, which is a work in us, that we are able to do the good works that you have prepared in advance for us to do. When we are busy ministering to others, we are less and less concerned about ourselves and whether or not we are measuring up to standards set by this world. And finally, dear Lord, knowing how we have struggled with trying to be good enough, please give us wisdom and discernment in how our words affect others and their feelings of self-worth. May we be like you, sparing and gentle with criticism and generous and joyful with praise. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we have the privilege today of dedicating a baby, so I want to invite that baby, uh, Emerson Kenneth Hankard, to bring his mom and dad up, Tristan and Sarah, and uh, to join them, Erica and David Davidson, who are going to serve as godparents. So wonderful that Erica and, and uh, David have committed to paying all of Emerson's costs all through college, and <laughs> so wonderful of you to be here to stand up and make that public. So uh, actually, I, let me re reboot that. How wonderful for you to support them and pray for them as they fulfill the commitment they're making today uh, as they dedicate Emerson to the Lord. So some, some questions. Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And do you trust in Him alone for salvation? Will you raise this little one, Emerson Kenneth Hankard, to know the love of Christ in your home, to learn the ways of Christ, uh, to uh, demonstrate for him what it means to walk with God in, in uh, his love and grace, and raise him up so that at some point he can confirm what we initiate today as he makes his own confession of faith. And what does this mean to you? Let me give you a mic and tell us in a few words... What does this dedication mean to you? you you've been very um, um, wonderfully motivated to bring him forward to be dedicated. So this is a big moment. What, what does it mean? Yeah, I just think from our life experiences, we know oh, how fulfilling uh, a walk and a life with Christ can be. And we're just excited here to be in front of our family and our church family um, to dedicate him to the Lord and commit to raising him in a way where he will have the opportunity to make that decision 
or the Lord. So thank you guys for being here and um, deciding to help support us as we go through this journey and make that decision. <laughs> well, we have spent a lot of time, uh, they've spent a lot of time thinking about this. This is not a light decision uh, because a mom and a dad are the primary pastors in the home. Let that sink in. A mom and a dad are the primary pastors in a home. And so what a child sees growing up is going to reinforce or undermine everything else everybody else is telling them. And so this is a high and holy calling, not only to be husband and wife, but to be a mom and a dad. Uh, and that's not an impossible job. Rather, that's one of the greatest gifts that we accept from God, is raising up children and not telling them what to believe, but helping them understand what we believe and them opening their heart and their mind in the same way. And so what a wonderful influence to think of all the things that Emerson is going to want to emulate in you too. You are fun people. You're fascinating people. You're highly educated. You're professionally motivated. You're going to do great things in life. Lots of people are going to look to you uh, and give you a lot of authority based on your credentials uh, and your accomplishments. But the greatest thing that you're going to be able to share together is this life in Christ, your covenant as husband and wife, and now this covenant that includes Emerson. And whatever children, other children you have, you get to then have this place where you're saying, this is what it means to walk with God. And so this is a high and holy moment, high and holy calling, I think, you know, Erica and David, what a, what a great privilege they've asked you to stand with them. And I think that's not a small thing to say that you will pray and encourage uh, uh, Emerson. And maybe during the, in the years ahead, you'll get a call from him saying, oh, they're doing it again. They're being a mom and a dad. I need your help. You know? and <laughs> so how wonderful that they have a, a family, a, a wonderful family, supportive family, praying and encouraging, and a congregation that stands with them as well. So let me take him. Yeah. Now, we don't know what he's going to be. We have no idea what he's going to be. Uh, he's well-fed, I can tell you that. <laughs> he, he's, a strong, he's a strong little boy. But what we pray he will be is everything that God wants him to be. And that when he finally confesses Christ as his Lord and Savior, thanking his mom and dad and others for the influence, that, uh, that we will, in a sense, be there with them, uh, rejoicing over that moment. So in the name of Jesus, we dedicate Emerson Kenneth Hankard, named middle name from his grandfather, and commit him to the Lord, that he would learn the ways of the Lord. He'd know the love of the Lord. He'd experience the peace of God, the shalom of God that passes understanding, uh, and would one day be so compelled as to say, yes, I believe it, and I thank God for it. In Jesus' name, Lord, we, we commit this boy to you. We thank you for his mom and dad, his grandparents, for the extended family and friends who surround them with love and encouragement. We believe that this is a marker a moment that represents uh, their commitment to follow through on the vows they made as husband and wife, and now they continue as parents. We commit this little one to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we go. God bless you. Uh, some announcements. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we are so glad that you are here. On your way in, you should have received a bulletin. On there, you will find our Connect card. If you are looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out that Connect card so we can get to know you. If you have new contact information, please fill out that Connect card so we can keep you updated. On the other side, you will find our Prayer card. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, 
please fill out the prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. These military families that are mainly over at the Marine Corps Air Station, uh, Miramar, are young families. They're away from their own families, and you know, having a baby can be a little bit of a daunting experience. So we provide baskets for these families. The baby baskets are comprised of a lot of different little baby items. We have baby gowns, little onesies, little booties. We have the normal things like baby wipes or baby powder, baby lotion. And we try and give these baby baskets out every month. So it's wonderful to be able to stand in that gap for a moment to be able to donate that sort of thing to them. And they're so appreciative. The idea that others would care and have compassion, that's what Jesus wants us to be, is compassionate. We respect our service members so much because of what they do for our country, the sacrifices that they make, that we want to be able to give back. They are our neighbors, and we can be the hands and feet of Jesus to be able to bless them and to encourage them and let them know that there are people who do love them and care for them. Well, I wish you could uh, hear, as we do, from these families that receive these baskets. Um, the, the military is actually created for single people. You don't, you, we don't usually think that way. But people get married and they have kids, and all of a sudden it's an overwhelming thing uh, to be home, uh, dealing with a new baby, and maybe your, your, your husband or wife is deployed. And uh, it's an expression of Christ's love in a very practical way. The gospel always has a social impact. Uh, the gospel comes out of God's grace toward us, but it then immediately motivates us to make a social impact, to care for people, and especially people what, that we don't know and can't really thank us directly. It's kind of a neat thing to be able to bless people in a way that they can simply say, I don't know why these people did it, but I can only explain it is that they, they love God and they love people in his name. So uh, feel free to um, participate in that. I hope you do. Well, we've been asking and answering seven primal questions. <clears throat> if you've been with us these last weeks, um, you've been walking through these questions with us. If not, go back and watch the sermons. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Seven Primal Questions. We're not preaching out of the book. So if you read the book, you won't really hear the same things. But the book asks these questions and then gives some ways of responding to them. Um, but underneath that book, we're, we're bringing in the biblical content and the theology that says, yeah, this resonates with everything God has revealed in his word, these seven primal questions. And they, they, they're, they're a gateway to a lot more questions, but these are really important ones in terms of us understanding who we are, where we are in the world. So the questions would be things like, am I safe? Am I secure? Am I loved? Am I wanted? Am I successful? <clears throat> and if you've been tracking with us, perhaps you've said, oh my gosh, that was my question. If you're reading the book, you said, I haven't seen my question yet. Oh my gosh, that's my question. And you can have people in your life that are very similar to you uh, in terms of personality, life experience, uh, you think, well, we have it in common, we must have the same question? No. You might have a very different question about the same issues. In the face of these issues, I'm asking this question, you're asking that question. And so today we're asking the question, am I good enough? Am I good enough? And perhaps just even hearing that question asked, you say, oh my gosh, that is my question. Uh, and even if it isn't your primary question, 
This is definitely a question everybody asks at some point in their life, at, at some moment, because there's so many occasions that require us to risk a yes or a no in, in answering the question, am I good enough? You know, um, some of you are old enough that when you were in elementary school, junior high and high school, and you took P.E., often the most dreaded moment for lots of kids was, okay, you guys, uh, you girls, choose up some teams, and we're going to do X, Y, Z, play X, Y, Z game. And you're thinking, if, Lord, I'm okay being the next to the last kid. I just don't want to be the last kid picked, you know. You don't want to be that kid, and, and I look back now and I think, oh my gosh, I don't know how much empathy I or any of my peers had because that last kid who didn't get, oh, I want Joey, it's like, oh, you can have Joey. You know, you think, oh my gosh, the devastation, a kid goes home, it's like, you know, I wasn't even drafted, I was just pointed, point go there. Um, getting picked on a team, how about applying to college, how was that for you? Did you have all kinds of dreams and aspirations, and then you applied to a college, and it didn't come through? And then the next one didn't come through, and your backup one was kind of iffy? And you're thinking, I don't know, do a lot of kids homeschool in college? Maybe I should consider that, you know? How about your first job, a first serious job? Or even not your first serious job, just any job that somebody's willing to pay you. I remember in, in this little community where we lived, um, uh, they'd have these movie nights around the community center and the pool, and the, the, the guy that was running it was, was giving it up, so I heard about it, and I was 11, and certainly not qualified to do it, but I knew that the guy who ran the distributing company for the soft drinks lived in the community, so I put on a tie fine my mother did help me tie it okay so fine you know but I put on a tie and a, I didn't have a jacket so I put a sweater on I got on my bike and I rode over to the guy's house and hi I'd like to make a pitch to you about the refreshments during the movie nights and he's looking he's looking for the voice and he goes oh what <laughs> come on in what, what do you want and, I, and I'm trying to lay out my great scheme for building an empire starting with this and he must have been holding just trying to hold it together not to laugh at me Finally, he said, you know, Steve, I think we can do a deal. I think we can make this go. And I, I was so excited. I rode home on my bike. I couldn't wait to tell my mom. It was the most exciting thing. How about you? Have you been in those moments when you were euphoric that somebody would let you actually wash their car, mow their lawn, do their windows, babysit their kid? Um, and then when you went to a job and you thought, I really need this job. I've got to have this job. How did that feel? Were you asking yourself the question, am I good enough? You get accepted to that graduate program, and you thought, well, your college is great, but man, graduate school. Now, you're going to be a graduate student at UCSD, and there's people from all over the world who represent the, the top people, the top candidates, and you're thinking, am I going to get in? And once you get in, what happens? You're wondering, oh, I got in, but it's like, congratulations, commiserations, I got in. Now what? Will I be able to live up to my own expectations? Will I be able to live up to the expectations of my peers, the professors? And, and this often, oftentimes puts people in a bit of a crisis. This and their first serious, serious job, and especially if it's a serious job at a high level, and it's called imposter syndrome. Maybe you're familiar with the phrase, imposter syndrome. <clears throat> Maybe you're familiar with it because you feel like I'm a 
I'm a victim of imposter syndrome. I felt that deeply. It's a documented, a documented behavior. The National Institutes of Health actually have ideas and opinions about this and advice for you. It's a documented behavioral condition that, that affects 70% of professional people. This is an unnerving thought to me, right before the root canal. I really shouldn't be here. If you can see the bubble over somebody's head as they're walking up and they're, they've got the gloves on and she's about to open you up and the bubble says, I, I'm not sure I really have what it takes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? Um, do you know the name Richard Branson, of course? Uh, there, his mother and father thought he'd be living at home forever. He was a horrible student. He had no attention span. He had ADHD on top of ADHD. Uh, he could not get anything right, do anything for very long, and they just knew he was going to be incapacitated. He seemed to be functional in most ways, but an affable kid, but no way. And then he becomes a billionaire, a billionaire, which brings to mind that old saying, you know, behind every successful person, there's somebody else laughing or, or wiping the sweat off the brow going, thank God that, ha that worked out. Do you, can you relate to this imposter syndrome feeling? Yeah, I, I, I quizzed some people this week, some highly placed professional people involved in massively important things that affect a lot of people, financially and in their well-being and life decisions. And I said, hey, <laughs> are you familiar with the term imposter syndrome? And they said, oh my gosh, why would you ask me that? I've spent every day of my professional life just waiting for the real guy to show up, waiting to be found out that I really am not in the right place. And so what's driving them is fear. They're just going to make sure they're not going to fail. They can do everything they can not to fail. This is why sometimes when you read a, a horrible expose about somebody who's robbed people, cheated people, um, deceived people, and we're quick to judge for all the right reasons. Say, that was wrong, that was vicious, that was mean, you've hurt a lot of people. You dig down a little bit and you realize they were faking it until they thought they could make it. <clears throat> Here's another angle on that. All kinds of people doing I illegal things for money, whether it was the old-time gangsters out of Chicago or the, the drug people uh, around the world. They're now in prison and they come to this crazy realization and revelation. My gosh, I could have been a legitimate business person. I actually have the skills to put supply lines, supply chains, strategies, marketing, customer service. You know, I understand finance. I can work with politicians. I've worked with so many of them. <laughs> right? And you think, where does this come from? Because they never resolved this question, am I good enough? Am I good enough? And so in spite of credentials, in spite of certificates, in spite of degrees, resumes, wealth, affiliations, we ask this question, am I good enough? Now, it's a great question to ask in terms of, can I do better? Is there more that I can learn? Is there more that I can do? Is there a better way to do this, a more fresh way to do this? You might do that every day. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're in the imposter syndrome. It just means you're asking the, the, the questions that have to do with growth. But I'm saying this is the question that has to do with worth. Am I worth anything as a human being? Am I enough? And what happens often is that we pose. 
and we project an image, and we create a personage. And we're very protective of anybody getting too close that they might actually understand that we don't have what they think we have. We're going to explore this in the next few minutes. Uh, one way that we react to this, when we come to that conclusion that I'm not enough, I need something more, is that, uh, and this is sort of the NIH perspective, we can, we can uh, move into several modes. One is the Superman, Superwoman mode. If I could just do it all, if I just keep rising up and saving the day, if I, just, if I can live a heroic life, if every time I walk into a meeting or a review or any situation, I can just sell myself all over again and just convince you that I have superpowers that you know not of, that I'm worthy and I'm enough, I can oppress you. Another one is um, the perfectionist. If I can just be perfect, if I can just make it better, 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 if I can just sell more stuff, create more stuff, come up with more reasons to get a grant. Some friends, I, I saw a friend the other night at a, a gathering, and uh, he's a major boat broker uh, and uh, sells these high-end luxury yachts. And... Uh, we were kidding about it, you know, the idea that, gosh, if I just had a bigger boat, then I'd be happy. If I just had a bigger boat, then I'd be more worthy. Uh, do you know the size of yachts these days? Yachts have gone nuts. I mean, talk about supersizing soft drinks and fast food. Uh, supersized yachts are a, are a thing. It's, it's mind-boggling how big they are. And you go, why would you go on a yacht or own a yacht where you have to leave breadcrumbs to find your way around on it? Part of it is the luxury of it the convenience of it. Uh, the other part of it is, that, hey, am I good enough? Are you impressed enough? I got the biggest boat in the harbor. I got a staff. Do you know that every Roman emperor, every Roman emperor uh, had a very, very unique retirement program. It's the guy that followed him killed him. Because at some point, the pe and it was always by the people closest to the emperor. They tried to poison them. Some of them just got strangled. They had, I didn't know this. Emperors, Roman emperors had personal trainers. Uh, and, and at some point, they became the most likely person to be appointed as a personal assassin. Because the Roman emperor, emperor was trying to be good enough. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? And when somebody realized they're not, somebody in the Senate, some competitor, they would out them and they would just kill them. It doesn't end well if you live that imposter syndrome very long. Uh, another way that we respond to it is to be a natural genius or to, is to hope to be a natural genius because we say, really, you have to be a genius to get this right, and which is true. I mean, if you were a natural genius, everything would be easier. But the idea is I have to fake it because I'm not a natural genius. And the, and, and the, the seed of that is that if it's really that important, you shouldn't have to work so hard. It should be a natural thing. I want to ask the question, did any of you have a hard time learning how to read? Did any of you have a hard time learning how to do math? Did any of you fail several times before you found the job that you really like doing? Uh, I have a friend who uh, went to Caltech. Uh, he ended up going to Stanford Business School. He ended up going, getting a PhD. He, he did all these amazing things. But when we first showed up at Caltech, they said, hey, you have to take remedial math. You're just not very good at math. And he was devastated. He thought, shoot, I knew I shouldn't have come here because you have to be a natural genius. And once he got over the shock of it, they said, no, no, hey, hey, don't take this the wrong way. We believe in you. You are a smart guy. You deserve to be here. 
And later, he ended up getting four patents that changed some of the bioscience stuff up here. Went on to do things in business and all over the place. What was going on there? They said, it's more than being a natural genius here. Everybody here was the smartest kid in their high school. But here, they're no longer the smartest kid. In your case, your high school and the community college that you took math, supplementing your high school, lack of math, wasn't enough for here. But we're going to take you where you need to go, right here. And so he realized he could let go of that desire to be a superman, a perfectionist, or pretend he had to be a natural genius. Another one that comes to mind when, when people are wrestling with this is, is the soloist. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. Stand back. I've got to do everything to prove my worth. And then that follows on with the next one, which is the expert. I've got to keep getting degrees and credentialing and, and read voraciously so that I can be the expert on all things. It's never going to be okay to say, I don't know. I haven't read that. I haven't heard that. Can you imagine being a doctor now? Everybody who walks in to your office says, oh, I, was, I saw this on the internet. Have you heard about this? And of course, it's, it's often some odd thing that hasn't, you know, it, it's probably illegal everywhere but China, and no offense to China, but it, it hasn't gone through the FDA, and somebody says, I saw this thing, I think it's the thing I need. The doctor's going, what is it? I've never heard of this thing. And you're like, whoa, my doctor doesn't even know? What kind of doctor is this? If all my friends from high school who failed science know, why don't you know? I'm not enough, I need something more. You know, the Apostle Paul wrestled with this. I want to read you a verse, and it's out of the Message Bible. The Message Bible, uh, you might be familiar with it. Eugene Peterson, brilliant scholar. <clears throat> he was an expert in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, that he thought his life would be as an academic. He felt then God said, no, I want you to be a pastor. So he wrote this translation of the Bible that is not some, you know, um, you know, uh, make it up as you go paraphrase. It's actually a word-for-word, -word, literal, but literary translation of the Bible. But it's, it, it, it gives us an, a, an approach to the Bible that allows us to open it up and feel like we're there. So that's what the Message Bible does really well. So I'm going to read you this passage, Romans 7, uh, 18 <coughs> to 25. And <laughs> the Apostle Paul says this, I need something more. I would paraphrase that by saying, I don't have what it takes. I'm a day late and a dollar short. It's not working. And they call me the Apostle Paul. I met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. They pick an apostle after Judas by casting lots, and we've never heard of that apostle again. God has an idea about who was going to be the next apostle. It was Paul. He raised him up. And here's Paul saying, I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of a sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. Pause here. Can you relate to this at all? If I decide to do good, I, I mean, I decide to do good but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. 
The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. I hope this washes over you in a way that is um, maybe bracing, like cold water. You're kind of shocked when the wave hits you, but then, then, then comforting. <laughs> that if the Apostle Paul can speak this way, I don't want to live an imposter syndrome Christ life. I want to live an authentic disciple of Christ life. This is where it starts. Not faux humility or a faux confession. Ah, I better make up something. But rather, you know, this is really who I am, what I wrestle with. Now, if we think of things in a binary way, we think, oh, well, then that discounts everything he said and done. How dare he say to Timothy in his letter to Timothy, just do what I do. When in doubt, just do what I do. Was that arrogance or bravado? No, that was authentic discipleship. When in doubt, just do what I do. That is when I really screw up, watch how I repent and confess. When, when there's a decision made, watch how I make the decision. Bringing in a, a theological, biblical perspective, even as I look at the real world events that create the context for this decision. I need something more is what he's saying. Can you resonate with that phrase? I need something more. I've never, ever met a person who got married that very soon after the wedding didn't say, I need something more. I think maybe I made a mistake. I think she thinks she made a mistake. I know for sure her father-in-law thinks she made a mistake. My father-in-law thinks her, his daughter made a big mistake. It's that second-guessing, cognitive dissonance. Yes, if you haven't felt that, you're just not acknowledging you felt that. Everybody feels this. And often when we feel it enough, we project it onto other people. Oh, you're not good enough. And you're the reason I don't feel good enough. Your job is to keep me happy. I'm not happy. You're not doing your job. And so we share it. People are very generous sharing their sense of not being enough. But what Jesus provides is what we need if we pay attention. It's not magic pixie dust. Yeah, accepted Jesus. Everything's supposed to be perfect now. But rather, having accepted Jesus, he will be perfecting in me what it means to be a fully functional and alive human being. And won't reach its ultimate conclusion until I'm before him at the end of time itself. But in the meantime, he's doing a work in me. He's taking me somewhere I could never go but for him. Not to create a, 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 an infantile dependency in me, but to give me what I need to be a fully functional human being with agency, with responsibility, resisting passivity, living courageously, making decisions confidently, and learning how to recover as I fail. See the power of that? He doesn't create robots. He creates fully alive people who can learn and grow. There's nothing more dangerous in this world than a person who's fully alive in Christ and is willing and able to grow. Because they can ask questions of themselves without judging themselves. In this situation, am I enough? Yeah, Lord, thank you, I am. We resolve these questions very quickly. Lord, what is it that I need to learn and do 
To whom do I need to turn? There's some good counsel and advice. Who should I emulate? All of a sudden you go, I'm the freest person on the planet because I can turn anywhere for help and resources knowing that in Christ I am enough because he's enough in me. And so Peter says it this way in his Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. That's a beautiful expression. Uh, we have everything we need to be enough. Oh, you mean perfect? No, he's perfect. We're not perfect, but we are enough in him because we're growing into a deep understanding of what it means to be in a relationship uh, with the living God. And, and the crazy thing is he accepted me when I was definitely not enough. Paul, again, writing uh, to the Colossian people, uh, that little town Colossae. You see this in chapter 1, verse 29. To get this done, to do the things that God has called me to do, he's saying in that context, I toil and struggle. I'm, I'm leaning in. I'm, I'm on it. I'm working hard. How, though? Using the mighty strength which Christ supplies and which is at work in me. It's not one of those five things, perfection, hoping to be a genius, um, an, uh, a superman, a soloist, an expert. It's rather saying, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow and, and obey and say yes to what you're giving me to do. Help me understand how to do it. Revive me, renew me, refill me, correct me. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says it this way, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, now this is 12.1, chapter 12, verse 1, all of chapter 11 was this incredible documentation of all these people who did epic things for God and every one of them failed or it was unfulfilled. On one hand, it's, it's so impressive, we call it the Faith Hall of Fame. On the other hand, it's very depressing because you go, the last line in the chapter, chapter 11, Hebrews says, and none of them got what, they, what was promised to them. Because God is going to answer that promise, including us. There's a picture in Revelation of people underneath the altar, and they're martyrs, people who've died in the name of Jesus. And they're, and, you know, symbolically, they're all under this altar, and they're saying, hey, when do we get relief? When do we get vindication? When do we get fulfillment? And, and, and the voice says, it's coming. All things will be made right. So this, there's this yearning that comes with this. But there's something powerful and specific and particular that we get to actually experience that gives us real hope, not false hope. So if I'm running this race uh, with perseverance marked out for me, what is the race in this season of my life? Well, it's about whatever tasks and relationships you're involved in. Running the race with perseverance uh, today started with dedicating Emerson Kenneth Hankard. Before that, there were some other things. So it's, it's always about task and relationship. Life is essentially those two things, task and relationship. What are the developmental tasks in your life right now? Uh, what are the things you're learning to do or doing because you've learned how to do them? Uh, what are the responsibilities you have that connect you to a task and a relationship? What kind of spouse are you becoming? What kind of parent, grandparent? What kind of employer, employee? What kind of leader, manager, owner, inventor? You know, what, what, what does that look like for you right now? That's the race you're running with perseverance. Now, how has it been marked out for you? It's been marked out for you that God is saying, I have a way of getting to where you want to go. 
it's going to be the best way to get there. He will use all the conventional things, what they teach you in a class, or the tools and the, and the technologies that are available to you, but a, a, he's going to give us and does give us a way of seeing them and using them that takes them from being what they are to something that he uh, can use. You can use the internet to destroy people. You can use the internet to bless people, right? It's that simple. You can waste your whole life on your phone and on Instagram. Or you can say, Instagram lets me pray for people every time I see another pic of people presenting their perfect life. How did they do that anyway? But I know them. I know they're real people who bleed and cry and laugh. So I see this great picture. This is a great moment. I want to see this moment and thank God for it and then pray for the people I know who are dealing with other things. Because that beautiful picture of them together belies the fact that her mom is dying. Their child is struggling. Their neighbor just told them that the marriage is breaking up. Uh, they're not sure if they'll have enough money to get this done that they committed to, and now they're wondering how they're going to do it, right? All of a sudden, we have a transcendent way of seeing and doing everything. We don't ever minimize the things of this world. What we recognize is they're not enough unless God is helping us navigate them and negotiate them and use them wisely. Are you with me on this? Does this resonate with you? Because oftentimes our culture wants to say, oh, there's a spiritual side and there's the real side. I, I love your spirit. I love all the spiritual mumbo-jumbo that you've been talking about, but this is the real world I have to live in. And what this message is saying, yeah, but you're really, you're not living in a real world. You're living in a world that is shaped to your capacity to run it. Your world, really, the way you see it and live it is too small. It's a bigger world. In the same context and circumstances that you're in, there's a bigger world. So we ask the question, um, what's most important to me? What do I value and why do I value it? What's my motivation? So asking, am I good enough, might be the wrong question. Why? Because it focuses on limits, not our capacity. I don't have what it takes. The right answer to that is right now. I haven't been able to accomplish anything useful yet. We keep going back to this day, 100 years later, to Edison, the thousandth time the light bulb didn't work. Have you failed a thousand times? Are you kidding me? No, I've just learned a thousand times how this doesn't work. The lights seem to be working. Thank you, Mr. Edison, for hanging in there, right? He was asking the question, not am I good enough, but what's important to me? What do I value? Why do I value? What's my motivation? Uh, so don't ask, am I good enough? Ask this, what am I called and qualified and committed to do? What am I called to do? Ah, Dear Tristan, I'm gonna, I'm, I feel called to marry Sarah. Sarah has the same idea. I think I'm called to marry Tristan. And so after processing that, they say, wow, we've got a lot of confirmation from people around us who say, man, I've been thinking the same thing. Now that we're married, what do we do? Well, we lean into it. We start to build on those values. We start to try to understand each other at a way deeper level than we've ever before. And so we're becoming qualified. We're becoming better listeners. We're, we're becoming better at communicating. We're becoming better at considering other people in our schedule. We're becoming better at a lot of things. And all of a sudden we think, hey, you know, I think I'm committed to raising a child with you. What do you think? Yeah, that's exciting. Scary. We know all the jokes about being parents. Everybody's an, ex an expert until you have a kid. But yeah. So all of a sudden you see this process of being called 
and that call being confirmed. And then you're qualified, you're learning skills, you're applying skills, and then you find that commitment carries the day. Because as you're trying to apply those skills, all those techniques, you don't do them very easily at first. And even as you do them pretty well, you start to realize, I'm not perfect at this, but I'm committed. So in an attitude of gratitude, your life is now a calling and a gift that you're learning to live by God's presence in you, guided by his word, empowered by his Holy Spirit, encouraged by his people. And so we follow God's lead. We pursue the things that make us feel most alive and useful and effective for him. I love the way somebody said it, <clears throat> that, uh, that the, the, our sweet spot in life is where what makes us feel most alive meets the world's great need. Where my deep joy meets the world's great need, ah, that's where I want to be. Uh, anybody who's going to help you chart a career path is going to say, so what resonates with you besides sleeping in and overeating? Uh, what, what resonates with you? What makes you feel alive? Well, this, but I could never do that. Oh, really? Well, let's start with what makes you feel alive. And let's say, is that connected to a need in the world? Uh, no, it's connected to my ego. Well, then let's work through that. What if what is most important to you and most makes you feel most alive was connected to actually touching people's lives in a profound way? What do you think would happen? Something would click, and you go, you know what? Uh, I, I see my life from a larger perspective. I, I'm seeing my life as a mission, not just a series of accomplishments or experiences. So stop second-guessing yourself. Am I good enough? It's a dead-end question. It's a cul-de-sac question. It's a question that the enemy wants you to ask so you're, you're paralyzed and can't do anything. Stop asking that question, am I good enough? And start giving yourself the things that matter to God. How do I know what matters to God? I mean, I'm me. I, I, how do I know the mind of God? Ah, he's revealed it to you in his word. You can know what matters to God by reading his word. So seek and accept wise counsel. Ignore critics. Seek counsel, but ignore critics. Seek counsel, but ignore critics. And listen carefully to the critics, because embedded in their uninformed criticism might be some great counsel. But don't live with that critical voice in you. Oh, my mom always said, my dad always said, I've always said, you'll torture yourself that way. Seek and accept wise counsel. Confess your sin, but don't let imperfection paralyze you. Of course you're not perfect. And don't use your imperfection as an excuse for not leaning in and growing. Well, you know, I'm not perfect. Okay, let's start there. What would be an improvement on where you are and what you're doing, how you're seeing things? And so we embrace high standards, and we resist negative thinking. Those aren't incompatible. I have high standards. Again, I'm not saying I'm perfection. I'm saying a high standard. but I'm going to resist negative thinking. I'm not going to fear success or failure. I'm going to fear God. Not in a cringing sort of way. I'm going to fear God, and, and then I'm going to say, God, you made me, and you've made me in your image. In fact, in your word it says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. In fact, it says in your word that you loved me and the world so much you came and you lived among us with all the humiliations and contradictions of this world. And you died to remove the power of sin and death over us. 
I fear no one but you. And if I'm successful, I won't freak out. If I'm, if I'm failing, I won't freak out. Sometimes success is just a nicer prison cell. I don't disparage our wealth. I don't disparage, I, I don't you know, romanticize poverty. What I want to say is, don't fear either. They're false gods. The real God instills a sense of awe and wonder that the Bible calls fear. An overwhelming sense of nobody but God can do this or be this. So ask for help, offer help, commit and collaborate. Climb your highest capacity. I love it on Mount Rainier. The, I, this, I thought about this this week because a friend called me. He was giving me an update on what's happening in the Mideast. We're both involved in a thing called Musalaha Reconciliation led by a Palestinian named Salim Munayir whose family has lived in Palestine for 800 years. He's a follower of Jesus. He's got a PhD from Oxford and uh, I think an MA in theology from Fuller. He does, every year he comes and does an intensive uh, uh, course for lawyers at Pepperdine University. He's a brilliant guy. But he, he created this thing called Musalaha, bringing Jews and uh, Muslims together. Powerful. So my friend is telling me about this, and it sounds like he's like the windy or something. I can, I'm barely hearing him. And so uh, I said, hey, thanks. You know, he gave me an update on this website they've been updating for the U.S. people who are supportive. So I, I emailed these people, and um, I said, later uh, texted him back. I said, hey, uh, did you see my email? And then he, this is a couple hours later, and then he texts me a picture. It's a picture of him in front of a small tent nudged up against a rock wall surrounded by a glacier. He goes, I'm on Rainier right now. I can't, email, I can't get email, so I'm just texting you. And which reminded me that, you know, 30 years ago, he was, I got a call from him and another friend, and they're whispering, they're going, hey, I just want to let you know, we're up on Rainier. I'm like, okay, why? First of all, it's amazing, cell service on Mount Rainier. Why are you whispering? Because we're in a snow cave. We don't want to be those idiots with a cell phone in front of all the people who don't have one. But what they do on Rainier is when you're climbing Rainier, uh, the, the Rainier mountain guides, who, uh, who, one of whom is the Sherpa who's father took Edmund Hillary up to the top of Everest. When you get to a certain place and you realize you have maxed out your capacity, they just go, hey, congratulations, you reached your high point. Isn't that elegant? Way to go. You've reached your high point. They make it a celebration. And then your first thought is, hey, wait, I haven't got the summit yet. No, no, better. This is your summit. If, you, if, we, if we try to take you higher than this, it's not going to go well. But you see, there's a sense of fulfillment. This is the beautiful thing about climbing to your highest capacity. You're not comparing yourself to anybody else. You're comparing yourself to you. So be better and do better by seeking God's version of better. Ask, what, would, what did Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Do you know the name London Breed? London Breed is a lady in, in, on the hot seat right now. She's the mayor of San Francisco. Can you think of a more thankless job right now being the mayor of any city Maybe Chicago, I don't know, but, you know, uh, but London Breed. Very capable woman, grew up in the hood, grew up in the tenements and the, and the projects, and now is the mayor of a major city. <clears throat> she has a plaque on her desk that says, what would Beyonce do? <laughs> what would Beyonce do? Uh, I, and I heard that, I thought, wow, Beyonce is certainly impressive. 
an amazing, impressive woman. You look at what Beyonce has accomplished, it's, it's super impressive. But I'm thinking, just thought, just throwing it out there for consideration, maybe Mayor Breed should set her sights higher. <laughs> maybe all of us should set our sights higher. Because there's lots of people we could emulate, but ultimately, if we're not emulating the Lord, if we're not saying, Lord, I want to get my orders from you, and I'll appreciate all the role models around me. We're not going to know what the better version of better is. So if you aren't, for example, achieving your dream right now, perhaps you're dreaming the wrong dream. Or you're dreaming that dream and interpreting it the wrong way. There's something more important embedded in that dream than just achieving whatever you think it is that's frustrating you greatly right now. Maybe it's the process of pursuing that dream that's going to be your high point. And the point that God allows you to pivot to the thing that God's been preparing you for. And rather that being a fail, oh, I never got into that program. I never got that degree. I never made that money. I never, whatever. You're saying, oh my gosh, but look what happened. Look what happened. I've never felt more alive. I wouldn't have met these people. I wouldn't have met Christ. I wouldn't have, you know, et cetera. So God is our source. God is your source to a better version of life and the pathway to a better version of you. Am I good enough is an insulting question to ask because you're asking it of God. God, you apparently make junk. And as somebody one time, a long time ago said, God don't make junk. God makes people in his image that he's redeeming. And when we see what they'll look like in the new heaven and new earth, we would drop to our face and try to worship that version of ourselves. And that version of ourselves would go, whoa, 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 it's just me. It's just me. This is who you're going to become. It's him. It's him. But we're going to say, yeah, but it's so stunning. Yeah, because I'm reflecting the glory of God. If we seek our own glory, ah, big mistake. Major serious mistake if we seek our own glory. We need to seek love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, not glory. Glory is a byproduct, not a goal. It says that we, we are the, the people alive in Christ are the glory of God. Why? Because we're reflecting him. Not claiming to be him. And so God is able to write a better story in your life if you're willing. Therefore, do not postpone your life. Well, I'm stuck here. This is hard right now. Or it's a perfect part of my life. I don't want to leave it. No. It's right now that you're creating your future. You don't just arrive at the future one day and go, hey, I'm here. Or you don't arrive in the future and say, I think I'll create my future. No, your future is created by every decision and commitment we make. You make right now. How do you want your life to be in a year or five or ten or twenty? then what are you deciding today? With whom are you aligning today? So don't postpone it. Understand the present is where we are. We are building our future under the uh, sovereignty of God. And so embracing God's truth and love makes us good enough to live effectively now and forever. I'll leave you with this story. Um, there's, there's seven pools in a place called Las Cruces. Uh, Las Cruces, if you go to La Paz, La Paz is on a bay. If you look at a map, it's like the bay, um, like this. And here's California. Here's Cabo. We're looking a little bit upside down. But um, La Paz is here, and, but the Sea of Cortez is here. And if you go over the land here, you get to a little place called Las Cruces. Cortez found it. 
It's a beautiful oasis. It's a private little tiny community. I usually have to fly into it. It's a cool place. Very low key, very cool, very neat. It was built by the guy that used to own uh, Baja. There's some mountains outside there, about a two-hour walk. And if you leave the, the coastline and walk, you're walking across the desert. But if you're talking to anybody who lives there, they go, oh, there's some amazing pools. I've flown over them or I've been by them. They're remote, but they're gorgeous. In the middle of nowhere, there's these beautiful pools. And so if you walk from the coast toward them, you're walking across desert, and it's hot, and you're walking, 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 you're thinking, I'm just lost. What am I doing? This is silly. You know, then a couple hours. But you have to just be watching, watching, watching. You say, oh, my gosh, there's a damp spot in the sand. That's weird. And you go, oh, my gosh, there's a little puddle. And you look up, oh my gosh, there's a bigger, and you keep walking toward that, and you go, there's a, there's, there's a little rivulet. You think, this is weird, this is awesome. And you follow this little rivulet, and a little rivulet in 15 minutes becomes a stream. And then the stream, you know, gets a little bit bigger and deeper, and uh, you turn a corner, and there's a little grove of, of uh, some trees, shrubs, and, and you look, and you see it's framing what looks like a, a pool, you walk toward that pool, and you realize there's a waterfall filling that pool and a rock wall around it. And you realize, hey, if the water's coming from a waterfall and I don't see anything above the waterfall, there must be a way around to get on top of this wall. And you do that six more times. And every time the pool gets bigger, and pretty soon you're in this massive granite basin that you feel like, if you've been there before in the High Sierras, you go, this is a High Sierra granite basin coming off a peak filled with snowmelt. There is no big peak and there's no snowmelt. So it's this natural, beautiful place. And you think, I'm all alone. There's nobody offering me towels or a drink. Nobody's setting up a chair for me by the pool. It's just this awesome, natural place. And you feel alive. You feel kind of smart. But then you realize, I'm not that smart. I just kept walking. And I just paid attention to what I saw. This is how we answer that question, am I good enough? We say, you know, it's enough that I want to go to a place that is really good, that I'm going to keep walking. And when you come back, having been on that adventure, you'll say to somebody, you won't be bragging, you'll just say, that was the most amazing thing. Because it took me to a place of abject frustration and a sense of failure that is not going to happen. They must have been punking me. Instead, you realize, no, it just wasn't on my terms. It's just the way these things work. This is what we are talking about when we ask the question, am I good enough? God equips us for the journey by equipping us in the journey. He equips us for this journey of, with Jesus in the journey. And the journey means we just keep walking with him in his grace and his truth and his love. He's faithfully leading us to his kingdom as we walk with him in faith. But we have to leave our kingdom behind. It's not a dual kingdom. It is a kingdom over which there is a king, and you and me are not it. We get to be part of that kingdom, beloved sons and daughters of the king. But we've got to leave our, ours behind, and we declare our allegiance to him. And as long as we're building, busy building our kingdom, we'll not make time to seek his, and we'll miss all the signs of his kingdom. And we'll conclude with cynicism and despair and some anger at God. It's just a big desert. 
and you want to run back and say to everybody, you're fools for talking about this beautiful place. No way. No way. And I love the fact that it's, 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 you start at the cross. Las Cruces. You start at the cross and you walk toward this incredible paradise. This is the journey we're on, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the one we need. He's enough and more than enough. In him, you will be enough. Can you say amen to that? Amen. If you're not a believer, if you have never heard this and you're going, I don't know if, I still, if, I, if I'm open to this, just be open to it. Today you're standing in front of a damp spot. What do you make of it? If you've been walking with Jesus, you go, I've been walking along the river. I've been visiting those pools. I get it. I've gotten distracted. I need to get back on course. This is what you were made for. So Lord Jesus, I pray that having made us for this, you'd allow us to experience this right where we are, doing the very things we do, that you would meet us right where we are and take us where you want us to go, where no one else can get us, even the people that love us the most. That, Lord, together in you, we can get to these places that experience, allow us to experience you, that we can be together in you, and that is enough. We pray this and thank you for this. In Jesus' high and holy name, amen. Okay, uh, we're going to wrap up with a song, a time of worship. This is a time of offering. If you'd like to contribute to the La Jolla Community Church, you can, there's a little box you can put an offering in. You can mail us your offering, whatever. We, we respectfully love and, and, and use wisely anything you entrust to us um, out, of, out of your stewardship, out of your generosity. But this offering is about you giving you to him. And then uh, I, I, afterwards, we'll have a benediction, a final blessing. And I invite you to go around into a beautiful garden, a little mini paradise, if, if we can pray for you. If you want somebody to pray with you, for you about anything that concerns you, or maybe you brought a concern for others with you today, we'll pray with you for them. And then help, help yourself with some refreshment. So let's worship the Lord now.
That's what it means to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, to trust in Him. That's what it means to walk with Him, uh, to continue trusting in Him. If you feel like you need to sit quietly and reflect on that, just after the service, uh, everybody else is going to be going off, just come sit here, kneel here, or sit on these steps, and look at that cross and let Him speak to you. Uh, if you need and want to pray for somebody in your life or, or see, receive prayer yourself, as I said, go right around the corner uh, and, and receive some prayer. It's not odd, not weird. It's really... It's like a little mini uh, spa treatment, you know, having people pray for us. In the meantime, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for being here today.